Thank you all for making it to the, uh, the final lap of the conference today. Uh, can everyone hear me? Is this on? Yes? Okay, good. Um, so as Lydia said, uh, I'm the director of uh, Cato's project on emerging technologies, and it's a pleasure to be moderating this panel, which is going to discuss uh, and explore the ways in which financial technologies and cryptocurrencies are improving the speed, efficiency, and cost of US and global payments. Uh, I thought, though, uh, to, to kick off, I would have everyone on the panel just briefly introduce themselves. Uh, we can start from my left to further on. Uh, my name is John Collins. I'm a partner at FS Vector. We're an advisory firm uh, specializing in government and regulatory strategy and compliance uh, for financial technology companies. My name is Andrea O'Sullivan. I work at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Uh, I'm currently a feature writer for Mercatus, so I cover um, a wide range of topics. But for a long time, I managed uh, Mercatus's technology uh, research portfolio. And we had a, a special focus on cryptocurrency. And during my time on that project, I co-authored uh, a primer on Bitcoin that was specifically geared towards policymakers. Uh, my name is Jerry Tsai. I am a uh, director with the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. I oversee our uh, small but mighty fintech team, as well as our regulatory applications function. Um, we uh, do a lot of engagement with the industry through our fintech navigate program. And uh, while I'm, I'm really more of a, a regulator and a former lawyer as well, so uh, I, I'm very interested in payment systems and, and work a, a lot on payments matters. Uh, and I'm Ryan Zagone. I lead our regulatory relations practice at Ripple. Uh, we're a company using blockchain and crypto in the cross-border payment sector. Great. Well, thank you uh, for joining us. I think I'll start uh, with a, a question for the group. Uh, you can all uh, tackle this how you wish. But uh, I think it's fair to say that U.S. payment systems and uh, international money flows are notoriously slow. Uh, and I think it'd be good for the audience to get an idea of what you think are the kind of companies in this fintech and crypto space that are uh, actually reducing transaction costs and speeding up uh, final settlement of payments? What are the big players or innovative companies that you see in this space? Here we go. Sure. I'll, I'll dive in. Right. Um, so I'm from Ripple. We're, we're using blockchain and crypto in the cross-border payment sector. When we look at cross-border payments, it's very much a postal service experience. Like we, we drop our letter in the mailbox. We hope the postman delivers it. We're not sure exactly where it is. If there's an error or a mistake, it's certainly hard to, to reverse that back. Uh, that's very similar to our cross-border payments today. We've taken uh, blockchain and digital assets as tools to underpin uh, new payment solutions, uh, the first of which is live now. Uh, we have uh, financial institutions using it for real-time uh, cross-border remittances, uh, so person-to-person -person payments. Um, Santander is one of our key partners on this. Uh, we're live doing payments today. Uh, we have other customers using the solution for corporate payments, so uh, uh, allowing real-time uh, SME payments. When we think about SMEs, the, the, they're mostly domestic-focused today, but as they grow internationally, they hit these barriers in the cross-border space. It becomes too operationally or, or too intensive from a treasury side to really engage in, in global growth. Uh, so that, that becomes a barrier to commerce. And now we're, we're, uh, we have several clients that are now using it for corporate payments. Um, one client's done over a billion dollars in transaction volume for SMEs uh, just in the last few months. So very rapid growth there. I think Ripple's also notable for what we're doing with digital assets in the payment space. 
Uh, we have, we've been trialing that now for about two year, two or three years now, and it's going live later this year, a platform to give you real-time access into markets without pre-funding. So this is a looking at especially illiquid currency pairs, payments from, say, Mexico to Thailand, where it doesn't justify the cost of pre-funding, but you can use a digital asset as a real-time bridge. Our trials have found that that reduces the cost of that payment from 40 to 70%. So some material reductions while opening access. Yeah, and I, you know, I've been involved in the industry since about 2013. And I think one thing, and we're going to get into this, I believe, is a shift, especially when it comes to Bitcoin and some of these open uh, blockchain protocols, a shift from the use case of the discussion around an open payment system, a decentralized visa, however you want to put it, to now a conversation around crypto assets, um, which has come up earlier today. And in part, it's because Bitcoin uh, and other uh, networks have been a victim of their own success. It's just more expensive to do transactions, and in part because the assets, the underlying asset is, is volatile. But, but you know, there is a, there's a team um, called Lightning Labs, Lightning Network, uh, which is basically a second layer application being built on top of the Bitcoin network that aims to solve uh, at least the problem around transaction fees. A woman named Elizabeth Stark is one of the leaders of that group. Um, they're based here in San Francisco, and they're, they're a, a team that is working really hard to, to try and kind of bring that use case, I think, more to the forefront again. Yeah, Lightning Labs is very exciting. Um, so since the second topic of this panel is crypto, I think I'll speak to that more uh, generally instead of talking about a specific company. Um, so today the theme is obviously financial technology. Cryptocurrency is a special kind of fintech. Um, so a lot of the fintech that we've talked about today is talking about the traditional financial system. How can we make that better? How can we make that more efficient? How can we expand access? But it all revolves around having a central party in the middle, right? You have a bank, you have a credit card company, you even have something like PayPal, which is an entirely new kind of company. Um, with a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and all of the other variations that have followed, it attempts to do away with that third party altogether. Why would you want to do this, right? Most of us here live in, um, you know, thankfully, uh, very stable economies. We have a lot of options available to us, um, but that's not always assured, and that's certainly not the case in much of the world. Um, in removing the trusted third party and replacing it with a peer-to-peer -peer network that is totally managed by a distributed network of computers across the world, what you do, uh, in addition to you know, solving a long-standing problem in computer science, is you ensure that anyone, anywhere in the world, with access to a computer uh, and an internet connection has the ability to transfer value. If you're living in a kind of economy that's in a nosedive, like the tragic situation in Venezuela, it's very important that you have access to some kind of transfer system, right? Uh, you're not always able to have that if you're especially among the lower classes. Um, it's a very desperate situation. But with the development of cryptocurrencies, you do have that. So we're talking about like the real innovations, the improvements of the crypto space, I'd say that is key. Um, sometimes it can be faster. Sometimes it can be um, cheaper, right? That was a lot of the discussion early in maybe 2012, 2013. That always hasn't um, been the case, as uh, John mentioned. Um, there are developments like Lightning Labs and other you know, competing coins to try to uh, provide that. But um, the fundamental uh, value provided, if you will, is the censorship resistance in making transactions online. 
And uh, if I could jump in on this one as well, and I, I forgot to give the probably the last of the standard regulatory disclaimers for the I was day, going to right? remind so, you that yes, you might <laughs> So, you know, views purely on my own may not reflect the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco or any other part of the Federal Reserve System. Um, I guess with that said, certainly, you know, I um, kind of jumping off of some of the comments made in, in the previous panel, I definitely recognize that a lot of payment systems out there are looking at, at you know, distributed ledger technology and, and blockchain frameworks and, and kind of exploring developing the, the new um, fundamental infrastructure and, and payment rails in that space. Uh, I would, um, you know, I'm uh, very excited to, to see this development and, and look forward to hearing more, uh, you know, about those kinds of developments, uh, especially in the international uh, payment space. I do want to point out, though, that, you know, I think a lot of the innovations in the payment space, especially in the domestic sphere, uh, have not been about uh, new infrastructure and new rails. It's about uh, a better user experience. It's about driving efficiency and effectiveness of the existing payment rails and making them more accessible. Uh, I don't mean at all to say that we should not be concentrating on uh, on the development of, of new payment systems and, and the potential for, for blockchain and, and other kinds of technologies, but recognizing that there's a lot of room as well for advancements within our existing payment system. And uh, that has already a broad reach and a, and a built-in market, so there's a lot of uh, potential uh, gains there as well. So maybe a, a question for, for Ryan and Jerry. How, uh, taking a, a bird's eye view of, of global regulations, how does the, the US compare? Uh, we've had some discussion throughout the day on, on different jurisdictions, but on this, on this area specifically, how do you think the US ranks compared to uh, other countries? I agree with a lot of the comments earlier that certainty is the prerequisite for adoption. Like that's pretty well-founded, and it's, it's global in scope. I do think in where we're seeing now is a recognition that blockchain and crypto will play a key role in the next generation of infrastructure for financial services. And countries now recognizing there's potential to be a leader there so they can become a global capital of finance. So you can look, uh, you see companies putting holistic frameworks in place to attract this, this technology and this investment. We've talked a lot about UK and the reality of UK's work is now being shown. Like there's now more people working in fintech in London than New York. Also, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Australia combined. Their fintech growth has been astounding, and it's both domestic growth, but foreign companies moving there because the environment is so much more workable. Hmm. It's not easier. There are still high bars and strict rules, but it's flexible and workable to allow innovation to happen. We're also seeing China lean in very directly. The VC investments from China in technology are about to eclipse the U.S. for the first time in history. This is a key focus on building financial services and having China be a global capital of finance. So it's a play that they took from the U.S. Like in the early days of the Internet, the U.S. built was a leader in building a holistic framework for electronic commerce. And that's what enabled the growth of mega tech companies that, that are global in scope but U.S.-based. That they're taking that philosophy and that strategy and applying it here for this next generation of finance. So in the U.S., I would look for, uh, we urge this holistic view of a coordinated approach toward, toward uh, regulation, where today it is a bit more fragmented than what we see in other countries. Um, I, you know, 
I certainly recognize you know, there, there's a level of, of fragmentation in the United States and, and uh, note the, the efforts in the UK and, and other jurisdictions that, that Ryan uh, discusses. I think you know, the US payment systems uh, you know, is, is obviously a, a, a very old, a very large payment system uh, that has uh, served the nation well I, I believe, and our economy well throughout its, its development and uh, certainly through the history of the Federal Reserve, that's one of our, our primary missions as well, is, is um, ensuring a, a safe and secure U.S. payment system. Um, as much as, as there may be, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of potential opportunities for uh, improvements in, in the regulatory structure uh, as it pertains to the payment system. I, I would also point out that I think that some of the advances that we see in other countries, perhaps not necessarily just in the crypto space, but with the other payment systems, are also, uh, I believe, based on the relative uh, uh, lack of, of other legacy electronic payment systems in those, those jurisdictions. Uh, in the United States, we've had a lot of uh, legacy electronic payment systems, the credit and debit card networks and ACH and things like that. Um, certainly, you know, all of us with experience with them can have various opinions about them, but they are very broad reaching in the US. They, you know, some people may have concerns about the cost or stuff like that, but they, they can largely, uh, you know, facilitate all kinds of transactions. Uh, as we make that, you know, sort of next jump, um, I think that perhaps one friction here is that consumers are already trained, already uh, very used to the existing legacy payment systems, and there may not be a compelling use case for many of them to think, you know, why should I switch from pulling my plastic out of my wallet, you know, to, to any pay function on my phone, never mind any more uh, esoteric or new system that's, you know, that doesn't come with points, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to now uh, shift to a question for Andrea and John. Uh, I think. Andrea did a good job of, of highlighting uh, the good uh, case, use case for something like Bitcoin, right, cryptocurrencies. But uh, I, I wonder how much of the regulatory issues associated with cryptocurrencies uh, can be attributed to the fact that they might have a quite bad PR, that I think many members of the public associate these, uh, these assets with crime, uh, with dodgy characters. Uh, so for John and Andrea, is that down to bad PR on the community's part, or is it a uh, a worry that is overblown? Well, I think that anytime you see a new technology, you're going to have an element of that. I mean, you can look back to the development of the internet and, you know, the scare stories. You can look at, like, funny old magazine covers of, you know, cybercrime and, you know, all these various uh, parade of horribles. And that does happen, right? There is crime online. There are bad things that happen online. But I think, you know, if everybody asks themselves, is the internet more of a, a good or a bad thing? I think most people here would answer, it's a great thing. You know, the, the positives far outweigh, outweigh the negatives. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in particular does have an element of a, um, I mean, the community was very much, uh, you know, libertarian hacker scene, right? So these people are uh, a little different than your average person, uh, you might say. Uh, so they might have embraced things a little more out of the ordinary. Um, but again, you saw the same thing with the internet. These are kind of libertarian hacker people and they have a different kind of ethos. Um, as the community has matured, as we've seen more, uh, you know, people getting involved, we've seen more oversight, uh, you can say like a professionalization. Uh, I think you're seeing less of the bad PR. Um, and you know, I think that if you look at it on a whole, the good PR far outweighs the bad. 
Yeah, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that makes this technology and this industry as fascinating and interesting as, as it is, is because these open networks allow for so many different types of products and businesses. So, you know, for a regulator, you know, it, they're just very different businesses. It's, you know, you, we call it an industry, but, you know, the work that Ripple does with Santander is very different than the work that Gemini, which is the Bitcoin exchange the Winklevoss twins run. It's very different from blockchain.info, which is a software wallet for cryptocurrencies. And it's very different from a company called Axiom Zen, which sells crypto kitties. Has anybody here heard of a crypto kitty? Right, digital collectibles, this idea that you know, blockchain allows for the, the transfer of ownership, and so if we're all going to live in a digital world, then the things that we used to hand physically will then be held digitally. I mean, these are just dramatically different businesses. So you know, in part, I think, you know, not to take sort of the regulator's position, I, although I did used to work in government, um, you know, I think a part of it is they're, they're just all you know, different rules that, that apply, or in some cases, no rules you know, necessarily need to apply to them. Yeah, so a question, uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too, but maybe uh, to Ryan. Uh, in preparation for this, uh, I came across comments from the SEC's Bill Hinman, who said in June uh, that Ethereum, which is uh, one of the most popular cryptocurrencies, is not a security because its current decentralization means uh, the legal definition of a security does not apply. So uh, what do you think about the way that the SEC has been handling these assets, uh, pros and cons? Uh, and do you agree with uh, how Hinman has... Uh, tackled the issue. No, we're seeing we're, we're seeing the SEC lean in and look at this space very closely. Uh, I've seen the priority. I said publicly we're prioritizing fraud, which we would applaud. That there is, especially in the ICO space, seem to be a significant amount of fraud there, uh, and many people have pointed that out. Um, and and they're, they're going down the list of Bitcoin, Ethereum. It's no surprise, and no secret. We're, we're engaging with the SEC. We have been for quite a long time uh, across for the past. I've read led regulations at Ripple for almost four years now, we've been engaging in DC and globally throughout that time span. So the conversations and the engagement's not new, but I think given that the topic has, has grown internationally, people are taking a closer look, especially after we saw price spikes in January across all the cryptos and price declines in, in uh, February and throughout the quarter um, since, there was a renewed interest in consumer protection, AML, and market integrity. And we've seen that not just here, but at the G20 level, um, uh, the OECD and FATF as well, so large international bodies. Um, we're engaging with all of those, and pretty, we're very clear. We have a longstanding view of, uh, of XRP. Does it meet the definition of a security? Uh, we didn't create it. It's not equity in our company. Uh, but it, it's ultimately up to the SEC to, to decide that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think this was raised in the last panel. You know, principles-based regulation um, and asking for permissionless innovation will inevitably create gray areas, right? So you, it's a delicate balance between, I think, industry and regulators to f walk that line between clarity and being allowed to innovate. I mean, I think one way that that's, you know, being solved for that, and, and it was talked about in the earlier panels, is there does seem to be more of an openness, um, not only at the SEC, CFTC, CFPB, and other places, to have a dialogue with industry in an ongoing basis. And the SEC set up a digital asset task force, or, or I don't know if that's the exact title of it. Um, but, and I think that's positive. I think that helps us kind of figure out those gray areas as they pop up. So a question for Jerry uh, on, on the Fed. What are the active steps that the Fed's taking in engaging banks and fintech firms on uh, improving the payment system? Uh, are there specific initiatives or uh, activities that you've uh, laid out? Sure. 
Um, I think probably the, the biggest and most well-known uh, um, program that the, the Federal Reserve has was sort of setting up the, the Faster Payments Task Force. I suspect there are probably many people, uh, you know, my co-panelists and people in this room who have been engaged with that program. This was sort of, um, you know, established a couple years ago with an, with an eye towards designing, you know, what a, you know, a next generation payment system would look like in the United States with, you know, uh, there have been a number of public reports that the, the Fed and the, and the task force have released. I think uh, a big part of the concept, of course, is that uh, ideally we're looking at a market-driven solution, something that's, that uh, the industry provides, but the Fed has a role in shepherding the, the process along. Um, outside of the, the Faster Payments Initiative, there have been a number of people, both at the San Francisco Fed as well as other parts of the system that have been heavily engaged in uh, fintech and the, and the payment space. Um, speaking, for example, for the San Francisco Fed, our Fintech Navigate program is, is a, you know, kind of the analog to, say, uh, the programs at the CFPB and, and the Comptroller, where we're very eager to have opportunities to interact directly with the industry uh, and, and, and you know, seek, seek their views as well as be able to provide any sort of informal guidance that we can about uh, regulatory and, and uh, payments issues that, that may come up. Um, aside from that, uh, I can note that, for example, the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston is a member of the uh, Hyperledger uh, program. Um, there have been many people studying distributed ledger technology issues as well. The Board of Governors and, and some Reserve Bank staff put out a uh, paper in, in 2016 also. Um, we, I think, across the Fed, there, there are many opportunities for us to engage and, and continue sort of our interactions and future learnings from the industry and certainly would invite uh, any of those opportunities, any people in this room to, to avail themselves of that as well. Sure. Uh, so a question to uh, Andrea, and this might be on the... The, the state of technology. I know that uh, at least when it comes to some of the more popular uh, crypto assets such as Bitcoin, a common complaint, especially in the last 18 months or so when it enjoyed a resurgence uh, of interest was that the transactions take too long, it's cumbersome, uh, it's nowhere nearly as efficient as its proponents say it is. Is, is that a problem uh, with the technology or is uh, that related to the adoption needed for it to work? Sure. So this is a question that's kind of plagued the Bitcoin community since its early days. You can look at old posts on the Bitcoin talk forum and the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin himself, Satoshi Nakamoto, kind of anticipates, okay, so we have this very kind of delicate incentive structure that is able to overcome the double spending and Byzantine generals problems for the first time ever. However, is there you know, a limit on the throughput? If we're going to scale up to be uh, a payment system the size of something like the Visa network, like how can we manage to keep this delicate system and the incentives that keep it secure and operational while also so allowing fast and cheap payments. So this is something that very, very smart people have talked for a long time about. Um, there are a couple of different philosophies involved. Um, some people who think that they can't, they just can't reconcile these philosophies have done what's called a fork of the Bitcoin network. Um, so this means that the software kind of splits. Um, miners can choose, the, the computers that run the network can choose which chain to follow. Um, it's kind of a, a divorce, albeit maybe a messy one sometimes. Um, and then there's people on the original Bitcoin network that are still uh, hashing out these problems. Um, what John mentioned earlier, the Lightning Labs solution, or the Lightning Network is the name of the um, platform in general. There's different companies that are building it, building it out. This is a um, 
second layer solution, right? So rather than trying to fit all these transactions on the Bitcoin network um, that may be slower than people like and more expensive than people like, uh, it's handled off chain in a way that is still secure, in a way that is still ultimately peer to peer, um, but it removes kind of, you can think of it as the congestion costs of the network. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is just very exciting to see because this seems to be a solution that people of a lot of different philosophies can get behind and it, it's working, which is the best <laughs> news of all. So I have a, uh, a question for, for the whole panel, uh, anyone who wants to jump in. Uh, and it's really a bit of a, a selfish question. So some <laughs> people uh, might not know that, that I met uh, Andrea a little over six years ago, and she was talking about Bitcoin. And I uh, stupidly didn't listen as much as maybe I should have uh, at the time. Uh, and uh, a few years later, I started getting a bit uh, into the space. And uh, more, more recently, during the, the eruption, I got a bit more into it. Um, and then uh, tax season arrived. And uh, it was a headache I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy to try and navigate uh, how the IRS is dealing with a lot of these assets. Uh, so a, a question for the panel, anyone can jump in. Uh, what, how, how should, um, in an ideal world, the IRS treat this kind of stuff, given that uh, people are trading it every day, people are using it for purchases, some people are holding it. Uh, and what's the biggest barrier to getting the IRS to uh, come out with a, a workable uh, taxation regime for this stuff? Sure, so right now, um, cryptocurrency transactions are taxed like a capital gains tax. So that means that uh, anytime you purchase Bitcoin, you have to very assiduously track any price fluctuations, uh, and then when you spend it, you need to you know, pay either a gain or a loss, right, based on the um, fluctuation. Um, so if you are somebody who's more of an you know, investor, uh, and you are not using it to make payments on a day-to-day -day basis, that isn't as big of a deal. In fact, you might like that, trend, the, that treatment as opposed to other tax treatments because it might be a lower rate than it otherwise could be. Um, but if you're somebody who's interested in it as a payment system, that's horrible news. I mean, what kind of person is going to sit there and calculate every single transaction that they make? And um, some of the um, commercial platforms like you know Coinbase, they, they have tools to kind of help people. Um, but based on reports that I've seen, something like I don't know the exact number, but some abysmal uh, percentage of Bitcoin users or cryptocurrency users are actually compliant. Like the IRS might get like, I don't know, 10 people actually paying taxes on it because it is so complicated. So perhaps you could say in an ideal world uh, to kind of, um, you know, think about both groups of cryptocurrency users perhaps have something like a de minimis exemption, right? So if you're making a purchase under, let's say, $500, you don't have to worry about taxes. That's clearly not somebody who's an investor. That's clearly not somebody who's trying to make money off of it. So why should we have them beholden to that um, situation? So that hmm. would be my kind of wish list. Anyone else have a wish list uh, on, with the IRS? That's a whole separate panel, I mean, for this uh, yeah. specific. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't have any comments about the, about the IRS and, mm -hmm. and, and the tax treatment of, of crypto per se, but you know, I, I think that the way the IRS is looking at it versus you know, the way any of the agencies, the Federal Reserve, Bank of San Francisco, and other uh, parts of the system are looking at it sort of fundamentally gets to the issue that's, that's been discussed a number of times, which is you know, all cryptos have you know, features of currencies, features of securities, features of commodities, and it's this idea of you know, how, how lawyers like me are, are trying to slot it into one category or another that I, I think can raise challenges for existing regulatory structure. 
um, in the banking environment, as many people probably know, banks have authorizations to do you know, certain kinds of things. And so when you think about you know, how do I engage in cryptocurrency activities, part of it is this exercise in slotting, right? Well, I can do securities type activities and I can do commodities activities under different sets of rules. You know, which one is this? Mm -hmm. uh, I do have a uh, question about uh, uh, something related to privacy. Uh, when you think about uh, services or like WeChat, for example, it's that uh, the, there seem to be so m many um, benefits to these sort of uh, applications because they're very uh, efficient and you can do a lot of things uh, with them. But it also seems that people are really sacrificing a lot of their uh, privacy on the altar of convenience here. Uh, is there uh, a, a way that we can actually uh, ensure that people have uh, the ability to protect their privacy as these kind of applications grow? Uh, or should we be content with the fact that people know they're giving up all this information and uh, they're doing it voluntarily and that's fine? Uh, should we worry about privacy in this space? Good question. Well, yeah. That is a good question. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe to, to wrap it uh, to put a finer point on it, right? Uh, there seem to be, uh, with cryptocurrencies especially, uh, coins that are designed with privacy in mind, that Bitcoin is uh, not anonymous. Uh, but I, I worry that uh, as, as those kind of things become more popular, will be another excuse for government intervention. Uh, just, just well, you know, I'll answer it this way, actually. And I'll take it away from, from Bitcoin and, and um, the other cryptocurrencies that we've been discussing and talk about central bank-issued digital currencies. Okay, So the idea of like a, a digital dollar or digital pound that is issued by the central bank um, and is kept in a wallet. Right. So the European um, authorities, I forget if it was the Commissioner of Parliament, came out with a report maybe a year or two ago kind of espousing the idea that per, upon birth, maybe every European would have a digital wallet given to them um, as, as we have a you know, social security number given to us. So, you know, what does that mean for privacy, right? I mean, if, if the, the federal government or whatever government authority is the one issuing the dollars and knowing that, that that's, that is a big privacy concern. I mean, you know, cash, um, cash allows for, for a great deal of privacy. In fact, that's why so many people commit crimes with it. Um, and, you know, if you're going to move to a central bank issued digital currency, whether here in Europe or elsewhere, you know, those are some serious questions that need to be asked around privacy and, and frankly, you know, questions around what then becomes the role of banks as depository institutions. I think if there's a, is a perception that there's privacy in payments today, that would be wrong. Like under Bank Secrecy Act, there's a lot of reporting that happens on traditional payments. And when we look in the crypto space, the, uh, the visibility of to trace transactions has been used several times by law enforcement. There was a DEA and uh, Department of Justice did a big drug crackdown, uh, finding like, deep level uh, drug trafficking uh, regimes through Bitcoin transactions. And at this point, the, I find the users that are, that are interested in using crypto as a, in illicit ways are amateurs that don't understand that. The, the government and law enforcement, to give them a lot of credit, have done a significant amount of education to understand how to use and track those systems. There's a whole industry alliance called the Blockchain Alliance. It's private sector that teaches law enforcement how to use these technologies. Ripple's very happy to be a, a member of that, along with many in the Bitcoin and Ethereum community. There's a, I think the mature folks in the industry recognize that for the technology to reach its potential, illicit finance has, is nowhere in that tent. And we're taking steps to ensure that that happens.
So when you think about financial privacy, if you want to interact with the traditional financial system, uh, it's what's called a pool system, right? So you have um, some money in an account, right? And you trust that institution to pull that money out of your account and to put it into somebody else's, right? Um, that's a lot of trust, but they do it very well. However, it requires, um, in addition to you know the regulations, uh, the very structure of that payment system requires that you give them a lot of information about yourself, right? They need to know that you are who you say you are. Uh, they need to know where you live, right, to give you mail or your email or your, your phone, you know, phone number. Um, and for most people, that's no big deal. Um, with a system like a cryptocurrency system, uh, that's what's called a push system, right? So the user and only the user, that means the person who has the private key to that uh, account, uh, is able to move the money. Right? So you don't need to rely on anybody else. So long as the internet is operating, you can do it. Um, so that by itself gives you a degree of financial privacy that you wouldn't otherwise have. Of course, in order to get into the system, perhaps you need to go to a bank that puts money in an account that then, you know, but if you are doing a native cryptocurrency transaction, you really control the amount of financial privacy that you have. Now, the nature of public blockchains is such that every transaction is recorded. And as my panelists have mentioned, that is a smoking gun, right, that law enforcement can then use to track you down. Um, there are ways to conceal, right, that, um, that trail. There are ways to ensure more privacy on the public blockchain. Um, but I think that the fundamental question of, like, what do you need to give up to make a transaction in a um, push system, uh, it places it back with the user in a way that other systems can't. And I, you know, to, to jump in on this as well, certainly, um, you know, we, we track and monitor developments in, in other central banks across the world with respect to the issue of digital fiat currency. Um, with respect to cryptos, I think there's any number of central banks and, and regulators who have, of course, identified issues around, you know, potential money laundering concerns and, and Bank Secrecy Act type, type issues, recognizing, as, as Ryan said, that, you know, oftentimes it's... Uh, um, not as anonymous, uh, you know, as, as many people might think in the, in the crypto space. Um, with respect to the, the greater issue of privacy, you know, certainly I think all of us share, share some, uh, some, some level of concern about, uh, you know, protecting uh, the, the privacy of, of users. Uh, I would also point out, though, as you mentioned, that, you know, given in many circumstances the um, users are kind of voluntarily, so to speak, giving up their um, financial information, their transactional information. Um, many fintech companies need that information, however, right, uh, in order to be able to develop and design their services. Um, so if you enter some kind of model where you know, there is a limitation on how much information that the, the, uh, the customer, the consumer is providing to the fintech uh, company, um, those companies may need to change the model by which they are able to, to deliver their services if they don't know when you're saving, when you're spending, what you're buying on. They also have a harder time designing, well, you know, what's the right time for this person to save? What's the, the best, you know, investment strategy they should have? How's, you know, what's the best way to design their, um, you know, the, the, the appropriate lending program for them as well? So uh, in the final uh, two minutes, I'm going to ask the, the panelists to think about lessons learned. Uh, it will be, I think, 10 years this November since the publication of the Bitcoin white paper, so I'll pick that uh, as a date. Uh, so in, in the last 10 years, 
uh, not just with cryptocurrencies, but financial technologies. What are the lessons we've learned in the last decade that we should uh, keep in mind as uh, this technology continues to improve and innovate? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of the you know cryptocurrency experience, just the focus on you know building resiliency, right? There's a lot of um, shiny baubles, right? There's a lot of buzzwords always, and not everything that glitters is gold. A lot of these projects that seemed very exciting have you know flamed out <laughs> horribly. Um, but if you see slow and steady wins the race, right? The very dedicated um, developers and entrepreneurs that have focused on building resilient systems, focused on the core promise of cryptocurrency, which is censorship-resistant transactions. Those are the ones that are still around, and those are the ones that are doing really exciting things, I think. You know, I think, you know, the discussion around Bitcoin and, you know, let's just talk about financial technology broadly. I think, you know, what I think it's driving at, what I hope it drives towards, is a financial system and a payment system that is open, that's fast, that's interoperable, and that's safe, and that's cheap. So that's five things. Um, and I think you know, that is where all of the advocacy should be going. That's where all the discussion and, and where much of the industry um, attention is. It's the work that Ripple and, and, and others focus every day on. And I think you know, there's an enormous amount of capital that can be unlocked. Um, and financial technology you know, is verifiably doing that for communities that have not had access to it before in ways that they didn't have access to it before. So that's what I think some of the things we picked up on and I hope we continue to push forward on. Um, you know, I, th I think a lot of the points that, that you mentioned are uh, points that also came out through our faster payments task force, and, and um, you know, don't have a lot to add on on top of that. I, th I think that you know that would be sort of the Fed's views with respect to you know what a 21st century payment system is going to look like. Yeah, t ten years is a long time frame. Uh, my key lesson from the last one year is there is a pivotal shift happening in the crypto space right now. It is a shift from the retail consumer focus into the enterprise space, so financial institutions themselves looking to adopt it, and a pivotal shift in the use case, where these technologies started out as a replacement for fiat currency. So we do away with the US dollar, we'll just use Bitcoin to buy our coffee. There's a pivotal shift away from that to how we can use the technology to connect fiat currency more efficiently. And I think those two shifts happening in parallel, an enterprise shift and a use case shift to have positive uses of crypto, have a lot of potential. This whole market will look very different one year from now with those two things happening. Great, thank you. Uh, we are now in the Q&A session. Uh, I would like to remind everyone, please wait uh, to be called on and then for the mic to come to you. Uh, please state who you are, where you're from. Uh, I would like to remind everyone this is the question and answer session, not the statement and answer session. Uh, <laughs> questions are sentences that end in question marks. Uh, I'll pick uh, the gentleman at the back there. Is there anyone else? Uh, and uh, Diego, right there. So let you first, sir. Yes, uh, my name is Mohamed Sadiq, and I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, my question is about liquidity in terms of the crypto space. How can I move into the crypto space and then move through my retail transactions wherever I happen to be in the world and be liquid. I think that with all of the different um, types of cryptocurrencies out there, is, is there going to be like, in, uh, like a, a, a clearinghouse that allows you to just be able to move different places and be able to purchase 
whatever you need to, to purchase, regardless of what coin you're, you're, you're dealing with. Right. So, uh, and then I think we'll take uh, Diego's question and then answer both. Diego Zuluaga, Cato. My question is to Jerry and Ryan primarily. Do you have an estimate of the aggregate dollar value gains from faster payments for consumers and businesses in the United States? It must be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So, yeah, let's, let's answer the, uh, I suppose, access to coin liquidity question and then on to Diego's. Does anyone want to tackle? I mean, liquidity is critical. And it, I think right now it's the weak point. It's a weak point in, in many countries and in many assets. Uh, however, I think it's also underway of being solved. This move towards more enterprise players and the maturity of the existing exchanges. We're seeing exchanges step up and make strong investments in their infrastructure. Um, all of those are signs towards um, like enterprise-grade platforms, which will add to liquidity. Uh, there's, like, I'll point out even Thailand is a good example here of a leading APAC country. They've done a 180 from banning banks from using crypto to allowing financial institutions to leverage it as a payment tool. And then two weeks ago, they came out with additional guidance allowing uh, banks to invest in uh, crypto exchanges, like to run digital asset exchanges as a way to provide liquidity for those payments. So we're starting to see the very early tip of that uh, start to happen. Until very recently, there was an exchange that was set up for the primary purpose of being a um, easily accessible uh, platform to change any cryptocurrency for any other one. Um, however, this is shapeshift, um, and they recently announced that they're having to move to an account model, um, perhaps due to regulatory pressures. Um, so, you know, your online avenues for doing this um, might be limited, um, but one of the most, I guess you could say, surefire uh, platforms to do this is also one of the most low-tech and the most, uh, longest running, and this is a website called localbitcoins.com. It's not just for bitcoins, but um, people all over the world can meet and exchange any cryptocurrency they want. Um, so, you know, it might sound like, why would you bother with something like that? But if you're in a place in the world where you can't access these kind of fancier online platforms, that's always a place you can go to. I, I don't have any comments about, I don't know about the, the, the liquidity mm -hmm. issue, but if, if we can turn to Diego's yes, question. Okay, sure. um, you know, I, I don't have a specific estimate as, as to what kind of cost savings we're looking at in, in terms of you know, potential, um, potential savings from various kinds of faster payments programs. But if you think about the total volume of payments that are you know, just being carried across the Fed, I mean, this is into the hundreds of trillions of dollars. So you know, even you know, small percentages of that are going to result in, in you know, very big numbers uh, in, in terms of savings. I'm certain if uh, you know, any Ryan or any of my co-panelists have, have any other you know, sort of estimates on that. I, I think it's, it's, it's got to be hard to exactly predict uh, or, or estimate, but it, it's, you know, my sense is it would be quite large. Yeah, so speaking to the cross-border sector uh, entirely, so not getting into the domestic side, on the cross-border space, uh, there's two to five trillion dollars that are pre-funded, so locked-in accounts overseas or with correspondence to enable liquidity for payments. And our view is that crypto can play a role in replacing that and allow immediate access into foreign currencies without having to pre-fund. So you unlock all that, that capital, that can come back and be put to use in a better way. Uh, you, can, you can put models on uh, how, how that can be leveraged for lending or hiring or whatever. Uh, but the pre-funding, the amount that's trapped in pre-funded accounts, Nostro and Vostro accounts, 
that's a critical piece to look at, and I think that's where a lot of cost is being captured today. Great. Uh, so two more questions. There's uh, this gentleman here, and I'll take uh, the, the one right behind him for the second question. Sure. So my question was around exchanges. So exchanges seem to be becoming now the central sort of point of failure or, or mm -hmm. centralized point in, in these distributed networks. And do you, can you share some light on where do you see that going in terms of decentralization of exchanges and, and how that plays out? Amar. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, there's kind of been an irony in the crypto system in that you know we talk all about decentralization and peer-to-peer -peer exchange, but the vast majority of transactions occur through these exchanges. And hey, I have a Coinbase account too, right? Um, so what you've seen is third-party exchanges that act like traditional third-party exchanges. They're regulated like third-party exchanges, and they have all the risks of third-party exchanges. We've seen major hacks, right? Um, sometimes there's internal bad players, like inf infamously with Mt. Go, one of the first, Mt. Gox, uh, one of the first major exchanges. Um, I think the promise of a decentralized exchange is like amazing if anyone managed to engineer that. I think um, people who have a big value on decentralization would certainly flock to that, but there are benefits to third parties, right? Um, some people like the ability that if, if they, you know, they don't have to worry about their keys, right? Uh, if somebody uh, messes up, they can like say, hey, you screwed up and, you know, go to the government and then get recourse. So there's always going to be a place for that, and I think they're going to more and more resemble the traditional uh, entities that they ostensibly were supposed to replace. Yeah, so uh, in disclosure, I used to work for Coinbase, which is a Bitcoin exchange. Um, and, you know, it's a popular one, and, and, and the centralized exchanges have been popular in part because people don't want to keep their own keys. A lot of people don't. Um, and at least in the case of Coinbase, they've done a really good job of, so far of keeping people's Bitcoin safe, which is awesome. Um, the decentralized exchanges are obviously something that is a number of teams are working on and investing in. Right now, they're really slow. Uh, and they're really expensive, but obviously that can change. Um, but you know, I think from a public policy consideration, you know, one of the greatest things that Satoshi Nakamoto ever did was just go away, um, because then there wasn't someone to call to a Senate hearing. Uh, you know, the the problem with decentralized exchanges, in part, I think, from a regulatory perspective, and this is just my opinion, is that you know who the teams are, and and I think there are still unexplored regulatory risks around um, responsibility, even if you just throw it out into the world. So that's that's my own personal comment. Right, we're in the final two and a half minutes, so this will be the final question. Thank you. Okay, so this is for Andrea and Ryan. And I want to ask you, do you think you can have a traditional business model and a token business model coexist in the same organization? Because it seems to me that if you have an economic business model with equity holders and you have a fiduciary responsibility to those people, and then you issue a token and you have a fiduciary responsibility to the token holders, it seems to me that the first group screws the second group. So can both of those exist in the same organization? Um, I guess they can. I wouldn't expect it to last for very long. And in fact, um, you're seeing currently right now um, a lot of the ICO projects, the economics of it just don't really make sense. They don't pan out. So I suppose it's possible I'd be very surprised. If you're meeting token as a way of, of issuing equity and, and fundraising in that sense, like you said, be in parallel to a shareholder, um, to be seen if that can be done successfully. Uh, if, you, if it could be a token that 
you're looking at using other use cases, there's many use cases for like, different varieties of tokens. I could see that coming together quite nicely. Um, my, my view on the token space is that there's so much potential and what we've really seen today is just technology and we're now looking at what the use cases are. Uh, so there's a lot of potential in that and there's a, we're in a trial and error uh, uh, sector, this whole economy, this whole uh, sector is, a trial and error stage to figure out where and how we apply this successfully. So I'm pretty optimistic on, on that technology. Um, I'm a question mark on which use cases will pan out to be, to be the best so far. Great, well, uh, thank you everyone. I think we brought this in uh, on time and under budget. So uh, thank you all for your, uh, your patience. Uh, all that remains before the, uh, the, the reception, uh, before the lunch is for you to join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you. Thank you.